0: Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up. We recorded this conversation in November during HubSpot's annual inbound event. As part of that event, I hosted a few conversations with some of the speakers. You've probably heard them over the past couple weeks. This week, we're bringing you our conversation with Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas, the writers and directors of Making a Murderer. Plus, stay tuned for a look inside next week's episode I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show.
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. All
0: right. Okay. Thanks for being here with us today. Great really to appreciate here. it. You guys spent 10 years telling this really amazing story that was happening. And I think that story has been told a lot mm-hmm. about Stephen and, and everything that you guys went through. The first place I wanted to start, because when we think about The Growth Show and we think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to empower people of how they think about their business and they think about growth. And part of that's the storytelling around what you're doing. And so could one of you maybe tell me about like the day that you decided that this was a story that we're spending all that time because I imagine you have no shortage of ideas or things that you could actually do.
1: I think the day we decided that we would pers- really pursue it was um, our very first day of shooting actually. It was Steven's preliminary hearing. The purpose of that hearing was for the state to basically present evidence to the judge and make an argument for binding Stephen over for trial. And so we had gone out to Manitowoc County. We joined the television camera pool and sat through this hearing. By the end of it, we knew that the judge had ruled that Stephen should be held over for trial and we knew that he was proclaiming his innocence. So we thought that there was definitely a story there. But one of the things that really compelled us was we thought that this story had the potential to sort of offer the next chapter of wrongful conviction stories. Um, There had been previous examples with Paradise Lost, Murder on a Sunday Morning. Actually that person was not convicted, but there were other wrongful conviction stories out there that would culminate in the person being released from prison and Stephen's story seemed unique to us because we were entering it after he had already been exonerated of a different crime and here he was charged in a new crime.
0: What was that com- what, what conversation did the two of you have after like that that <laughs> hearing, you know, walking back to the car in in, in Wisconsin, place you not really spent much time. Like what did you guys say to each other?
1: We were definitely remarking about the energy at the courthouse and in the courtroom in particular. I mean, it was was very charged. I think we were talking also just about, we, we wanted to stay, I think we planned to stay for a week and just wanted to see whether we could begin to get access to some of the people we could already identify as key players in the story. I mean, the Monica Davies piece in the New York Times, which was really what inspired us to set out on this journey, really did a great job of of setting up the story for us, in a sense, um, at least up until that point. I mean, she, the interesting thing about that article that we read was the focus of it, in many ways, seemed to be about the backlash the Wisconsin Innocence Project was experiencing as a result of having been so en- instrumental in freeing Stephen in 2003. And so there was talk in the community then in Wisconsin, you know, well, if only the Wisconsin Innocence Project had not gotten this guy out, he wouldn't have been in a position to kill this poor young woman. So that was part of the article. But then, of course, um, you know, what really jumped out at us was just sort of the dialogue about whether or not there might have been a conflict of interest in the case and the fact that. The law enforcement agency that was you know, being sued through Steven's $36 million lawsuit was also you know, investigating this particular case. So that, that jumped out at us.
0: So many aspects of the, of the, of the storyline.
1: Uh,
0: switching gears a little bit, I think what, another thing that's interesting about the process that you all went through that I think applies to, to so many folks out there is, you had a story you were gonna tell, and you picked, you had a format, you, you knew it was going to be, to be video, But you didn't know where you were going to distribute it when you started. You didn't know if this was going to be a film, if it was going to be a television series, Mm -hmm. whatever that was, how it was going to be consumed. How how did that influence how you created it along the way? Like, how did that impact your thinking in the making of it?
2: Well, I think from start to finish, our process was very organic. Mm -hmm. Um, It's true that when we set out, we thought we were making a documentary feature. You expected Um, you were
0: going to make a couple hour, maybe a two-hour documentary. Right.
2: I mean, it was 2005. Honestly, what else could we have thought we were going to make?
0: Streaming video wasn't really a thing. (laughs) But
2: but we knew very early on, I mean, about three months into our production. So we moved out to Wisconsin full-time in January of 2006 and end of February, early March. So March 2nd, Kratz has his press conference where he you know, goes through the narrative, saying we now know exactly what happened that night, and Brendan Dassey enters the story. Mm -hmm. So that immediately, we started pushing the boundaries of what would fit into a feature. Mm -hmm. But we were committed to continuing to follow the story, Mm -hmm. so we weren't, we were spending most of our time filming, not thinking yeah, about yeah, yeah. what's gonna be the end product, how are we gonna release this, how are we gonna market this, but just how do we accurately and comprehensively cover mm-hmm. the, what's happening. Mm-hmm. So that was fully consuming for about another year at that point. And then by that point, we had documented pretty much what you see through episodes one through nine, so we knew we had this incredible story, this unprecedented story with all this rich material, and knew what we would be giving up if we tried to fit it into a box that it really shouldn't fit into. So
0: Okay, so, so let's pick up there. You, yeah. you, you've You got all this content. You're like, okay, this is no longer gonna be a movie. Like, how do you then go about having some people to see it? Because part of it's a cause for you. you. You all believe that this was a very critical story to tell. So like, how do you get it to the world, which is what you wanted to do?
1: Well, at first we were sort of pursuing the traditional channels for distribution. There was a an independent feature market that we went to and we did sort of these speed dating rounds of meeting <laughs> with executives from HBO, AE, PBS, and just you know, some independent producers. And it was interesting actually because when we sat down with, with someone from PBS who's a curator for Independent Lens, she asked us, have you ever thought about doing this as a series? And we were like, yeah, <laughs> I, actually, yeah. I have a yeah, that, I have yeah, an outline optimal. right here. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. um, and we did later, you know, engage in talks with PBS about possibly doing it as a series. There, unfortunately, it didn't pan out. So part of it was that we knew the type of product we wanted to put out there didn't really exist. I mean, in fairness, though, there was an excellent series, television series, on the Sundance Channel called The Staircase. And that was an eight-part series about a man who'd been accused of of killing his wife and stood trial for murder in Durham, North Carolina. So that was one story that was arced out over eight episodes, that was very successful on the Sundance Channel. So that was sort of the one example that we were trying to hold onto. That, yeah. Look, look, can be done. And interestingly, we brought the project to the Sundance Channel, and when we finally met with them. I think it was their opinion at the time that they had sort of already done that and, and things had changed and maybe people wouldn't be as interested in following one documentary story over a long format like that. So yeah. we, we felt like we, well we'll have to start cutting it, I mean we were already cutting it but, but get it to a place where we're, where we're ready to show it and can demonstrate that this really can be a thing.
2: I mean we're in or so we're told. We're in this age of short attention spans yeah. and we would mm-hmm. hear that a lot that you know nobody's going to want to watch 10 hours of the same story and but turns you know, out they do if you
0: want if you tell it really I well. I I
2: found that hard to believe <laughs> that you know people wouldn't be engaged if you offer them an experience if you really like give them characters to engage with and
0: so, yeah, you know so so let's talk about that so then you, you building off that you go to netflix is the in- eventual distribution and the unique thing there is boom it's just it's all there like if somebody wanted to watch the 10 hours all at once mm-hmm. they can it's not it's mm-hmm. not episodic across a period of time Sure. so that changed how you cut it that changed how you made it or, or did you just think that nobody was ever going to watch the 10 hours in a row like what what was your preconceived notions around that i mean that? in
2: generally didn't change i mean it, it allowed us to make it Exactly how we wanted to make it. I mean, that's the beauty of Netflix. Yeah, there yeah. isn't a, you know, each episode has to be exactly this length. They're very supportive of creatives. So, yeah, you know, you can follow your vision and just yeah. make the product you want to make. The one place where I feel like it did change our, our editing or our storytelling is because for a long time we had the first episode as a pilot, so to speak. It was a double-length episode. We were pretty convinced that you had to get to the Theresa Hallbuck murder case to get a sense of what this was about that this wasn't, you know, the first episode is so heavy in looking back, and it, it's not as different from maybe other documentaries as the rest of it is, sure. and so you wouldn't maybe just turn it off, oh, I've, I've seen films about wrongful convictions. and So we were convinced you had to get that far into the story, and so we had been doing it as a 90-minute or a two-hour, and, you know, with all of their metrics and data, they were telling us people will not click on a two-hour movie, but they will watch. They would click on a one-hour show and watch three or four episodes. Yeah. And ah, so that terrified us that people wouldn't <laughs> click on the first episode because it said it was going to be two hours. Yeah. So we found a way to sort of restructure and flash forward right at the end of episode one so mm-hmm. that we got what we thought we needed to get out of episode one, but it could still be an hour.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that's an important note for everybody listening, which is, you know, regardless of your medium, that medium has a community, and they ha- and those community have very specific behaviors. And so in the case of Netflix, it was like, people want slightly lower commitment up front, but once, the, once they buy in, they're like, they're willing to stay in for the long haul, which I think you all have seen with your experience, essentially. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so. <laughs> You were, you were putting the story together, and you talked a little bit about characters. And you talked about, mm-hmm. oh, we have great characters. Well, what makes a great character in a story?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, characters that are multi dimensional yeah. are most interesting to me. I mean, our experience, we, we had such an arc ourselves mm-hmm. of meeting the individuals in the story, of, of going to certain locations. I mean, I remember the very first time we drove just in the vicinity of the Avery Salvage Yard. And it was it was that first week that we were out there on the ground, and we were nervous. You know, we were scared because we had just sat in a courtroom, or at least I sat in the courtroom. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I stayed warm that day, um, and you know, heard some of the state's most gruesome evidence, and thought something happened to this poor woman. And they're saying it happened here, and here we are,
2: you know, right driving
1: there. out by the yard, and we, we didn't know. So. But then, of course, we knew that in order to tell the story, we needed to reach out to the Averys. We needed to reach out to Stephen Avery, which we did. I wrote a letter to Stephen. You know, I believe I told him, just to introduced who we are and what we were about and what why we were interested in telling his story, and that you know we would hope that he would want to participate, and um, you know that we would want to include his family, of course, and he wound up calling us because we were not in a position to call him. He had to call us from the prison and made it possible for us to meet his family. So there was a time that was arranged for us to go out to the yard and we we first met his mother and his brother Chuck. And by the end of that first meeting, we were just very impressed with them. We were so grateful that they took the time to meet with us. Um, we had witnessed some of what they were already experiencing with the local media, you know, news vans just driving onto their property without permission, cameramen jumping out of vans with, you know, cameras on their shoulder, spotlights on their cameras, you know, not the most respectful way to deal with people. So we just felt like, well, we're here. We're not here to judge. We. We would love to give you a voice and and to listen to what you have to say without judgment and and luckily they responded.
0: So it was really about helping them. You just you were in, generally interested, wanted to help and see if there was an interesting way to tell the story.
1: I mean, I, I would say it
2: was about you know wanting to listen yeah. and and making that clear to them because I think, you know, I mean if an interview was ten minutes or if it was two hours, you know yeah. we were very much just there witnessing, and that was very different and. From their experience of cameras and interviewers. So, what's next? You've
0: been on a whirlwind tour around this, and it's gotten amazing attention. But, what, what's the next story?
2: We're continuing to follow this story. Two things became clear to us sort of between January and, and June that the story is not over. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen has a new attorney, Brendan Dassey's case is ongoing, so there was clearly more to the story. But the other element was that, you know, they're now in the post-conviction stage of our criminal justice system and just in questions we were getting or even in things that were happening in the world, the petitions to Obama, it was clear that in general we as a society don't really understand post-conviction law at all mm-hmm. and what's going on. So it felt like another chapter to, to bring viewers into it and, and see what re- it's really all about.
0: Now that you have this whole community around the story, will that change? how you tell this this next chapter of it?
1: I mean we definitely feel like we are you know working on this season in a new world in a sense because it's 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 pretty surreal to sit down with our subjects and they're referencing, directly referencing the series. Like Kathleen Zellner who's Steven's new attorney she's a perfect example. She talks about how Stephen and Stephen's um former fiance Sandy had been pursuing her years prior and she didn't take his case she later saw the series and sometime after that decided to to take on his case so there is a way in which i think we will lose some of our anonymity Mm -hmm. in the second season i guess it could become meta (laughs) we've been we've been thinking about that you know how do we how do we deal with how the series has impacted the world and how the world is impacting the series so th- it, it's an there are new challenges for us but it makes it you know it makes it exciting too
2: yeah i mean the world that we're documenting is very affected we're not in this small county that nobody's really looking at you know social media is affecting the characters and mm-hmm. the news and the national media is affecting the characters so that becomes part of the world that we're documenting you know trying to document it in the same manner but you know it's affecting what the story is
1: yeah I mean there was some I don't know I mean we had to think about early on like is there some strange way in in which we will be preempted from continuing our own story yeah. um, because you know this is so high-profile now the eyes of the world are on this community we just sort of always come back to the same place on that which is other people will will tell their piece of it, but there's definitely room for us still. So it's it's the way in which you tell it, I guess, that distinguishes it, so.
0: Okay, on that final question, there are people in this room, there are people listening, they have a story to tell. What's your advice to them about telling it?
2: Tell it, (laughs) is the first (laughs) advice. I mean, you know, don't let people tell you no, for one. I mean, you're gonna hear a million no's Tell yourself yes every time and it will average out. (laughs) And don't let, you know, whatever's standing in your way, time, money, whatever it is, find a way around it or even find a way that the thing you think is a deficit or think is an obstacle, you know, make that into an asset. When we started out, we were graduate students. We didn't have any money, but we did have time. Mm -hmm. So, well, we can't do this slick project, but what we can do is something incredibly in-depth and broad we had this terrible conundrum of our protagonist was behind bars how are we going to sustain a story when we don't have access but we started thinking about it and in fact being able to record these phone calls and have this sort of disembodied voice felt actually better than having access to him he's behind bars people don't have access to him but he's a fully fledged complicated person so it actually seemed like a better thing just Don't be discouraged and find a way. And I mean, the other thing I would say too is always think that the work you're doing matters. There are scenes in the series that happened on days that I didn't think that scene was going to be important, but thank God we filmed it. Thank (laughs) God I tried to find focus. Thank God I tried to (laughs) do it as well as I could because you never know where something's going to end up or something you're writing will get published or something. Some interview yeah. you're doing will plug into something. So just always do your best and believe in yourself.
1: That's very good advice, Laura. You have anything to add to that? I would say I can be quite shy about sharing work. I can think, oh, it's it's premature. It's not ready, you know. And I think one of the things I've learned along the way is that it is really helpful to bring in people with fresh eyes and to to get feedback and to really try to listen to what the type of feedback you're getting. Sometimes you'll hear things that, that might be a button for you or that you might feel a little defensive about. And maybe, you know, if you if you try to execute on that note, it might not be that very thing, but it might it might lead you to a new discovery. So I guess the point is to to try to share your work and to be open to, to feedback and constructive criticism and try to make the most of it.
0: Awesome advice. Laura, thank you so much for being with us. A round of applause for those guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As promised, here's a preview of what you hear next week on The Gross Show. It's a snippet of our conversation with Doug Landis, the chief storyteller at Box. Also known as the chief bullshit artist. <laughs> yeah. So right. so like what is that job actually for? So we can just <laughs> like establish a baseline for, yeah, for this yeah, conversation.
3: Yeah. So, so the idea really came from last year at our, our worldwide sales kickoff, one of the things that I realized is we needed to do a better job of infusing the voice of our customer into everything that we do and how we talk about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency of talking more from our own point of view mm-hmm. and using our own kind of our own insights to educate our customers. Well, you know what, the only person that actually has that level of credibility is Aaron Levy, because he built the company and he built the industry. One of the things I noticed is it was really, really hard for us to actually articulate the voice of our customer. So at Sales Kickoff, I I said, look, this has to be the year of our customer. So every session that we deliver has to start off with a point of view from our customer. Right? So if we're launching a new product, if we're talking about sales process, where does the customer fit into this? And one of the things that, that made me realize is like, we're pretty egocentric as a company and we need to shift the way we talk to and about our customers.